to episode 401 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be kicking off our series on Greg Araki with his 1992 film, The Living End. Um... Real quickly, if you missed our, if you're, if you're just jumping in, or you missed last week's episode, we hit 400 last week. Had a fun, yeah. uh, had a fun little little group together episode. Uh, so that's my wife listened to it and said our jokes were actually funny this time. So wow, what a what a compliment! Thank <laughs> yeah, thanks Rebecca. <laughs> our jokes were actually funny this mm. time. That's all I really that compliment hurt. Yeah, she she had a less direct way of saying it, but I I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but I'm I'm gonna ask later like which jokes landed for her and which ones didn't because that will make me curious. But could it, your well, wife I mean, re-listen and make a tally of who I made her know laugh what, the most? She she I mean, it was it me. Jesse said that Greatest Showman was a magician movie. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. I don't think that, that was a joke. That wasn't a joke. That was she just was misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We're going we're gonna to play that off as intentional. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that sounds good. Um, all right. Well, let's jump in. We got two new releases and two hotly talked about. We got, Hot we're getting movies. into the, we're Fresh getting in the, the discourse. Oven. Yeah, we're getting in the discourse, everybody. Um, let's kick it off with the latest from Robert Eggers. That is the Northman. Uh, this is, uh, as some refer to as Viking Hamlet, um, even though it came before Hamlet. In terms of like the Scandinavian folktale, uh, it stars Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, Anya Taylor Joy, Willem Dafoe, um, Bjork, Bjork, yeah, all the folks. Um, but yeah, I know we're a Nicole pretty Nicole Kidman pro- is in there. Yeah, um, I, th- I feel like we're pretty a pretty pro Robert Eggers podcast. But um, what did everybody make of the Northmen? I'm gonna. I'm gonna start with Andrew since since the witch is you know a lot for you. Yeah, my my love of the witch runs deep. Um, it was the first movie that I ever published an essay about on Cinematary.com, though it was actually just a reformatted letterboxed review <laughs> at the time. Um, but I love that movie a lot. It's one of my favorites. I actually teach that movie right now. I teach it alongside The Crucible as um, like a counterpoint to like different ways of talking about um, early American society and superstitions about witches and gender and things like that. Um, And I liked the lighthouse a little bit less, but I still enjoyed it. Um, I felt like it was a bit of a, like a, a swirl, a miasma. It did not have like a, the same like tightness and tautness that the witch did to me, but by design, I think it's supposed, it's trying to like, capture this feeling of people sort of getting lost in time. Um, and the Northman is doing a kind of a different thing structurally as well, where it's like a much longer movie. It's, it's adapting um, a saga. I think that's the, the technical term that medievalists use for talking about this particular type of folktale. Um, and I, the length was, a, was kind of a struggle for me in this movie, to be honest. Like I, this is my least favorite Robert Eggers movie. I still like it. I would I would like I would like to talk about all the things I like about it, but the main drawback that keeps me from loving it is just how thinly plotted it is for how long it is. Um, so, to give a little bit of context, 
I read the myth, the saga of Amleth uh, before I watched the movie. And I actually was assigned to read it in college whenever I was studying Hamlet. Uh, but I'd forgotten everything about it. I wanted to read it, refresh my memory. And in the version of that that I printed out, um, that story was about 12 pages. Um, this movie, which is, again, two and a half hours, I would say adapts like 20% of that 12 pages. Um, the the plot the the number of plot beats you could really count on one hand um, and I think one of the things about a saga and I'm again not a medievalist not an expert here uh, but just kind of like based on my read on that story when I read it um, is that they are kind of stories that are structured differently than like a lot of modern Western stories. You know, it's not, they're not just about like one conflict and one resolution. It's like, and then this happened and then this happened. So like to give you an idea, Shakespeare's Hamlet, which is an adaptation of that story as Zach alluded to, it ends halfway through the Scandinavian legend. And then there's a whole other story after that. So there's just so much to this story and there's so little of it on the screen. And I'm not saying necessarily that I wanted all of those things to be on screen because a lot of them did feel extraneous or, you know, not particularly meaningful, not like um, on theme. Right. But what we have here is just like very little, in my opinion, um, the the. The small parts of it that do feel really, like, thematically potent to me or, like, really, really exciting, I love. Um, but the movie as a whole feels a little bit like a slog to me. And that's a shame because, like, there's so much here that I do like and, and the actors are so delightful. Like, um, I love seeing Bjork on screen again for the first time since Dance in the Dark. Um, Willem Dafoe is the freakiest he's ever looked in this movie. Like, I think that... Robert Eggers is the um, like the greatest photographer of Willem Dafoe. Like Willem Dafoe's big speech in the lighthouse is like maybe the perfect encapsulation of like him as an actor. And then here, I don't want to spoil what happens with this character. He's only in like two or three scenes, but the last scene he shows up in is amazing. Like people who have seen this movie know what I'm talking about. Like you thought that Willem Dafoe's presence on screen could not get stranger. And it does. Um, so I really liked that about it. Really liked the way they handled the violence in general, but I've been rambling for a long time. Um, Michael, what were your thoughts about it? Well, I agree with the positive things you said. I actually didn't think it was a slog. Um, and I was kind of expecting to think it was too long because I was looking at the runtime and it was like, it's like two hours and 20 minutes or something. It's, it's pretty long, although I guess it's standard for like big budget cinema these days. But uh, it is a studio movie. It is, yeah, it is yeah. a studio movie. Um, and it definitely feels more conventional than like certainly The Lighthouse and The Witch 2. Um, and I like those two movies better as well. But uh, I actually was really surprised. I saw this on a Friday night, like 9.30 or 9.45, or it was something really late. And I was expecting to be like, OK, I'm going to have to you know, amp myself up to stay awake through this. But I actually found it really engaging. Um, just on like a, uh, you know, I'm, I was just entertained or, or intrigued by what was happening on screen at most moments. And I agree that there's not much plot 
but uh, I don't know. Like everything just looks cool. I know this is like a fairly like surface level thing, but like mm-hmm. there's just always like hardcore things happening. Like it's just <laughs> like you know there is not a lot of plot beats, but there is a lot of um, viscera per minute in this movie, and uh, I think that that accounts for a lot, uh, at least in terms of the kind of movie that this is, which is like as you said, like mostly like a fairly thin thinly plotted revenge saga um, in which you know that there's going to be lots of blood and death um, and there is lots of blood and death and it's not like particularly surprising along the way although there is like one twist kind of like two-thirds of the way through um, that I think is pretty interesting but for the most part it's the kind of movie where a lot of the intrigue is foreshadowing things that you know are going to happen and you're excited to see them happen uh, like for instance, I don't, this isn't really a spoiler, but the climax of the movie takes place within a volcano, and like you've seen that volcano erupting in the background for like uh, the past hour, and you're like, okay. The first shot of the movie is the volcano. Yeah, and so you're like, uh, when's that volcano coming? When's that volcano coming? <laughs> Chekhov's and, volcano. And you know, like, okay, the volcano is going to be involved in the climax somehow, and it is, and <laughs> in it's involved in like the most like pulpy like video gamey way but it's kind of it's just cool like yeah i I just thought like i don't know man like i i agree that it's there's not there's not a ton in terms of like you know twisty plot but the 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 plot beats that are there it sells the hell out of it for me and i was thoroughly entertained um i also think there's like some interesting themes going on that are maybe not like as naughty as the witch or the the lighthouse, but it's still an interesting movie, especially on the margins. There's just weird stuff going on in this movie that maybe mm. we can talk they, about. They like um, folklore stuff, like the mythology of their world is kind of relegated to the margins of the movie, and that was often the most interesting stuff to me. Like anytime you got the shots of the tree. Um, or Bjork's Oracle character, or the uh, the Valkyrie that um, he has a vision of him ascending to heaven or to Valhalla. Yeah, see that's with. see that's the stuff I I dug. Yeah. I was like, let's yeah. get more of that. That's, like, that's, yeah. that's certainly the best like stuff in the movie. Like the weird stuff, the the early like shaman sequence with um, Willem Dafoe, where like it's kind of like a, a coming of age initiation, right, for uh, the character who will become the grown Alexander Skarsgård. Um, is very freaky and weird and funny in a way that feels familiar to, like, old Robert Egger movies. Um, But also, like, there is something kind of interesting going on in the sense of giving us a story in which we understand the conventions of the plot, but having it filtered through a worldview that is, like, entirely steeped in, like, this kind of, like, ancient mythic folkloric thing. And so it's like we... it's, It's like someone from Norse... Like or not Norse, from Iceland or wherever, you know, um, saw a modern movie and decided to make their own modern movie. And I think that that is, like, really interesting. Yeah. And this is a thing that I like about Robert Eggers in general, and it's kind of come into clearer focus with this movie than than it was before, um, because I don't know if The Lighthouse is doing quite the same thing. But because he's somebody who's, like, primarily interested in history, it seems, and, like accurately representing history on screen in a way that it often isn't because we usually like kind of um we change the way that history is depicted in order to kind of satisfy a more modern sensibility um or a more modern like ideology right um robert eggers 
seems to understand that like people in history operated upon different paradigms than we do. And so he's he's like showing you what is real to that char- those characters, right? So he in The Witch, he is representing all the things that the Puritans believed in as if they were literally true. Um, and in The Northman, he is like representing, a, he is presenting a story that is completely like, um, it has sort of blinders on and is, is completely like focused on the like ideological um, uh, proclivities of like this Viking culture, right? right. And but I, I think don't, there's there's enough stuff like on the margins of it to make you notice the flaws, like the really really egregious violence against like children and stuff that kind of like just gets tossed aside. Um, I think is is there to to give you pause, um, but for the most part, we're kind of locked in to this perspective. I think, too, though, like, that's one of the things that's really interesting about reading ancient literature is those things that the story itself doesn't seem to think is very interesting because they're just kind of baked into the worldview, but stand out, like, really, like, you know, blaringly to modern readers. Like, uh, Andrew, I know you're aware of um, the uh, the recent translation of the Odyssey that uh, changes all the the terminology that's been traditionally translated in English as like servants or, or whatever into slaves, um, because that being like the historical context that like Odysseus like you know a lot of the servants and things that he was dealing with are actually just like enslaved folks um, from like whatever various conquests, and that is just kind of like a normal part of like the understanding, like an assumed part of the world, and you get that in this movie too that in ways that are really interesting, like the like purely subjective morality of the world in which like you can go sack and rape like another town but when it happens to you it is this cataclysmic like moral failure that must be avenged and the movie like shows that in a way that feels true to old stories where um you know i know that this is not an ancient greek myth but like i'm most familiar with like the like homeric myths or whatever like so for instance like odysseus um, is so mad uh, that, like, you know, the suitors are mistreating, like, his uh, his family and his household, that he, like, massacres all these people and then massacres the, the slaves in his house who sided with these other people. Like, in some ways, like, standing out to modern readers is, like, the brutality of, uh, like, Odysseus, uh, even though that's not really calculated within the morality of, like, the ancient Greek um, perspective of the story it's just like a, an assumed part of like the moral calculus of it and like in a way this movie works under the same way where like you see um the opening sequence you know involves like the the pillaging of the protagonist town uh and then the very next sequence is like 10 years in the future in which the protagonist has grown up and he is like part of a band of uh like viking berserkers doing the exact same thing that we just saw happen to him but it is presented in really morally neutral terms right there's no um like it doesn't really shy away from the brutality of what that is, but it also doesn't imbue it with like this is the center of the plot because it is a moral indignity. And I think that that's really interesting that the movie just kind of commits to that in a way that it feels like preserving that feeling of watching something from outside of your own time. Yeah, I think that like where he places the camera has a lot to do with that. Like whose perspective is being centered is like literally who's in the center of the frame, right? And that um that like berserker um raid sequence you're talking about is like this long tracking shot where you're just following Alexander Skarsgard's character, but like in the corners of the frame you see like women and children being like carried off and killed and things like that. Um 
but like and like you said that stands out to a viewer who's not from that time but that's not the story we're telling um we're telling his story and like kind of not necessarily to empathize with it but like here's how people in this time period thought of themselves right he gets his happy ending yeah and i think the movie is pretty nihilistic like in terms of like we as viewers, like, it's a pretty nihilistic story about how this worldview just kind of, like, dry, like grinds people into, like, oblivion. Like, that is It keeps like, him from happening, like, what we as a viewer might think of as true happiness, right? He kind of has a choice near the end of the movie. Do I want to, you know, go off and have this family with Anya Taylor-Joy, spoiler alert, or do I want to continue to pursue, you know, my this, this endless quest for vengeance? Um... And where is that going to lead me? Zach, what do you think? We've been talking a long time. Both sound fun. <laughs> <laughs> Both do sound fun. And let's go um, Revengeance on the killer. I liked, I think I'm probably closer to Andrew. Um, I, this is, I would say this is probably my least favorite Robert, Robert Eggers movies as well. Um, but still I'm p- positive on all three. Um, I was thinking about it today. I was listening to him talk with Marin, um, and it was a good conversation. But uh, I mean, he he's pretty open with the fact that the the story for the most part is thin, at least like in the movie. Like he's like he's because the way he was the, the way they got into it was they were talking about uh, Robert Eggers said that he was really he's really really into comic books and things like that, and then he <laughs> he did like. He, this ties into just like what he wants to do with filmmaking, but he like did a play um, and got really into Nosferatu and that like ruined everything for him. And, and so he like, and so after he did that, he like pivoted into like art history and history and uh, like deeper mythology. Well, he was going to do an adaptation of Nosferatu after the witch. And then it got put on hold and then it was going to happen after the lighthouse and it got put on hold and then people thought it might happen after this but he said it's yeah, not the next thing he said thing. In, in, in Marin's podcast that like yeah it's still kind of just in a holding pattern I think um, but it was just funny because like he just ditched comic books and and did and kind of like got into other stuff and like he was but he was talking about he's like this is kind of it has that archetype where it's a very the story yet yeah, is super basic and he's like that's kind of the point the point is it's supposed to be basic and then you have all of these uh these auxiliary elements that are just crazy like you have these performances and you have this these visuals and you have these like this kind of mythology and so to me i was kind of going in i honestly even before listening to it i was kind of going on that level i'm like the story is whatever um i want to kind of be engaged on those different levels and i think for the most part i was pretty engaged um nicole kidman is like swinging for the it's like oh, man. you know fucking fire so 100 mile per hour fastballs down the middle like i'm just like damn like we need more nicole kidman like on the list of things that i would have liked more of like in this nicole movie kidman that's, emasculating that's men with her like long speeches like that like, is yeah, she, genre like, that is or incredible. like is she like i the nicole kidman character is the part of the movie that i feel like i have the least amount of grasp on it seems like every <laughs> I, I scene she is um, she is presenting a different motivation, and sometimes in the middle of a scene, she will kind of change her motivation. No, she strikes me as one of those. Um, as one of those, like she's just she she's just out here trying to save her skin. You know, like she's just she's constantly out here. Like I don't care who who's at the charge, but I would like to be at the charge there too. That sounds good. <laughs> um, 
But like, so all the, like the performances are great. I really liked Alexander Skarsgård. He has, he's like 6'4", 6'5", and he just has like this very like hulking presence. But it's not like a, you think of like, like the Marvel suit people like, like Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pratt and people like that. And Chris Evans, who kind of have like this very like, like body chest and like, and Skarsgård's like kind of tall and like, like hunchy. Yeah. And so, and that's like a thing for the berserkers, I think, right They're They kind of walk like cavemen. They they have like these, and that's what makes it so like, that's what makes him so interesting in this movie because yeah, he's just like this insanely tall, buff, strong just kind of hunched over like he it, he almost kind of has like this this creature quality to him that just is really interesting the entire movie there's a lot of howling there is a yeah. lot of howling um, one scene in particular where they're like gearing themselves up for battle is them like probably five minutes just howling mm-hmm. oh yeah and i love that i loved when the kid the kid version and ethan hawk are just naked on the ground like howling at stuff like it's great like i like this seems like a just like dudes yeah. and dudes dudes being dudes um but yeah i feel like to me like again i would have leaned into more of like the mythology like i i I wanted more of like that side of things that it because that's such a good part of the witch because i think you can just like because the story is so thin like just make everything else psychedelic and just like go and go fucking nuts you know it's just like you have two and a half hours the story people are on board with the story this dude is trying to get revenge we understand that we've seen we've seen every revenge movie we've seen kurosawa we're good to go um but it's just like there's no like you know there's no psychedelia to it. There's a little bit, but I at least I wasn't satisfied you know with the level. what is kind of psychedelic that I thought was super cool? All of the nighttime cinematography. Anytime Alexander Skarsgård is just skulking around in the middle of the night trying not to get noticed, killing people or whatever. It's shot, I don't think it's in black and white, but it's about as close as you can get to black and white in color, right? It has this like deep silvery Yeah, it's like the moonlight to it. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. I, overall, I, I I recommend the Northman. I think the I think everybody here would recommend the Northman. So it's worth you know it's worth checking out. It's a fun time. I will say uh, I remember seeing the witch in the in a theater and walking out and hearing the grumbles from the people around me about like how they didn't like the movie. And I walked out of the Northman, uh, and I could hear people talking around me too. But they were not grumbles. Like people were into it. Like I don't know how this is playing with like a completely wide audience. But my theater was one very full, um, and two into it. Like it was a good crowd movie. Yeah, people. People see. I think this one will probably play better with a lot of folks compared to the other two he's made. Um, well, let's go ahead and d- jump into a movie that um, is uh, a wide spectrum of, of feelings and emotions. Ranging, f- yeah. Talk about the opposite of uh, a plot that is too exactly. thin. Like the same length too. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk. I talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago, but let's talk more in depth on everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, Michael, I'm gonna start with you on this one because I mean, I've, I, I talked around this movie two weeks ago, so I'll be curious to hear other people's thoughts, and then we can kind of bounce off of them. Yeah, my take is sort of the opposite of what I just said with the Northmen. Um, well, in one particular way, which is that this movie is too long, like way too long. Like <laughs> this is a 90 minute movie Agreed. that is two hours yeah. and 20 minutes long. Um, and otherwise I'm like mostly positive on it. Like I really liked 
the component parts of this movie, but what ends up happening eventually is that it feels like those component parts are like cycling the drain and just repeating over and over and over again. And I was very tired of it by the end. Um, but that said, there's some really good stuff. So I guess um, you kind of talked about it last time, but I'll, I'll kind of like briefly explain for, for listeners who are not tuning in to the episode with the funny jokes this time. Um, so uh, this is about a, a family and they own a laundromat. And at the beginning of the movie, it's kind of clear that they're like living this life of drudgery. Um, the mom and dad are about to get divorced. Um, the mother's father uh, doesn't uh, seem like he's doing too well health-wise and needs some sort of care. And uh, the mother's daughter, I, I, should, I should look up the characters' names because I'm blanking on them now, but uh, she is kind of estranged from her mother and is like kind of, you know, you don't get me, mom. Um, she's a lesbian and is having a hard time with the fact that her mother won't really admit to the grandfather that, you know, she has a girlfriend. Um, but, uh, this all changes when, uh, if she is told that, uh, she is part of this like huge plot over a multiverse, like an infinite number of multiverses, um, where this like sinister force is like kind of taking over the different universes. And so she has to like, learn how to like switch between the different universes and you do so by doing really outlandish random stuff um, and seeing where you land. Um, it, for some reason, this is what like causes you to switch uh, universes. And I thought it was um, really fun. Um, there's a lot of really fun stuff. Uh, you saw Swiss Army Man. This is like very much the same speed in terms of like this really wacky physical sense of humor that you know is very driven by kind of really committing to random bits of like what feels like came out of like improv sessions but like committing to it to the point where you have like full special effects with these things um and i thought that was like really fun and uh you know you get just some like really fun stuff from the one-off universes like a universe where everyone has hands that are hot dogs and they start spewing uh, mustard when they're aroused or something. Um, or like a universe um, where, you know, this woman is like a dancer um, or, or, or a singer, I guess, uh, and things like that. And like, there's so much energy in this movie that, uh, and is so committed to the bit that I really, I really like that. Um, there's some stuff in this movie that is so, so funny, I thought. Um, and... I thought all that was great. It also has this kind of emotional core where it's about, you know, how do you find meaning in life? Because this woman's living this life of drudgery. She has to go get audited by the IRS, and that's kind of a major plot in this. Um, and, of course, the IRS is just like a big old building uh, full of just like office drones who like know nothing but procedure and are just kind of like bored and hate themselves. As and opposed so, to the real IRS? Like, you know. I, you know... For all I know, those guys are rock stars. I've never actually met anyone from the IRS. So, uh, <laughs> my dad used to work for the IRS, actually. And I've never met your dad. You know, for all my uh, I'm sorry, he is a didn't mean star, to insult you your know? dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, like, so the beginning of the movie, this movie shows everyone in this like drudgery, and then they're thrown into this extremely chaotic situation in which like the uh, monotony of their experience is disrupted by showing that their routines are all like this kind of arbitrary functions of this huge chaotic world that doesn't make sense whatsoever. 
Uh, and so the, you kind of have this like existentialist like conundrum of like, well, how do you live in a world that is absurd, but also requiring you to do like really monotonous tasks uh, in spite of that absurdity. And um, I always like it when movies kind of like dip their toe into that sort of thing. And I think this movie like ultimately lands in a good place with that. Um, but it just takes so long to get there. Like, the, I, I think that this movie really could be cut down easily because it's not like the individual pieces take long. It's that we get to a point where you start seeing the be the beats repeating. Like there is like the climax of the movie involves um, one character trying to convince the other character that beauty and spontaneity and a sense of play in the world is what like creates meaning. You know, there are no rules because the universe is absurd. And so, you know, the meaning that you find in the universe is based on your, you know, ability to find enjoyment in the universe, you know, based on spontaneity and like silliness. And that's like a good idea, but it we see so many like back and forths in this dialogue that is like spanning universes and it's just exhausting. And like, honestly, by that point in the movie, you're not even seeing new universes. You're just seeing them kind of right. like, there's like four that they keep cycling. Yeah, you're just between. seeing them kind of reiterate. And like, it would be so easy to cut probably like 20 minutes from this movie. If you just make that climax shorter. Um, and that movie becomes just way more serviceable. But, uh, I like this movie overall. I just, I just was, was tired by the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my thoughts, I don't really like the Daniels. I didn't really like Swiss Army Man. I don't really like this. Um, but I feel bad about not liking both of those movies <laughs> for different reasons. Like, uh, Swiss Army Man, I felt bad not liking just because everybody in my immediate circle was just, like, in love with it. And I felt like I was just being mean by, like, you know, shitting on their fun. Um, and I kind of feel a similar way with this, but... Um, I more feel guilty that like I can tell that so much work was put into this movie. Like a lot of work. every minute of this movie has just like tons and tons and tons of cuts to like different worlds and and different crazy special effects that you would never expect. Um, and there like, is one shot, or I guess it's like dozens of shots, but there's like one, like maybe 20 second span in the movie that must have taken days to film because it's just this woman in like, like three dozen contexts that you just see like whip past the screen like at lightning speed. And I, I, yeah, it is really apparent how hard everyone works like in this movie. There's like full wuxia slash the matrix fight scenes with like good choreography and you know minimal cutting and um there's just like crazy cgi extravaganzas that i cannot like begin to imagine how long they they took to make and how many people were required to put them together um but it just it just wears me out like there's just too much. <laughs> I'm sorry. Everything all at once might be a little too much uh, for one movie. IMO. Um, my, I I have to quote this letterbox review from a reviewer that I'm not familiar with otherwise. But um, it, it's a longer review. But the first couple of sentences are. Um, enjoyed the first hour or so, then felt totally beat up and exhausted. Felt like someone saying, I love you in super slow-mo for the last 80 minutes. A classic case of if everything is awesome, then nothing is. Um, and that is exactly how I felt about it. Like, I was laughing at the jokes consistently for like the first 30, 45 minutes. And then 
I just stopped laughing at the jokes and it never really pulled me back in because like it's the same joke over and over. I'm not I'm not saying that it's like the exact same setup punchline or the exact same like running gags or whatever. Um, though there are a lot of running gags that I do think wear out their welcome. Um, I think that like just the basic ethos of the jokes is always like, bet you didn't expect that. You know, that the way that the world is set up in this movie, like Michael said, the way that people hop universes, they have to do something that would be so unexpected in their universe that it like breaks the matrix. Right. And so it's just two and a half hours of people doing random XD shit. And I just stopped finding it funny after a certain point and it became very draining. And even though I do kind of agree with like the thematic concerns of the movie and I do admire that there's an emotional core here. um, And I, I'm glad that this movie is doing so well. I mean, I want more original movies like this in multiplexes, and this is certainly original. I just didn't really enjoy it that much. Um, and I don't think it's bad, necessarily. If you enjoy this movie, I don't want to ruin your fun. It was not very fun for me after a certain point, personally. I do think like maybe that sense of exhaustion is kind of like inherent in like what the Daniels seem to be interested in doing, which in both this and Swiss Army Man like involve them coming up with an absurd bit that might be like a cutaway gag in another context, but then Making just like that not the letting movie. go of that. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, of course, like Swiss Army Man is about like, oh, what if a corpse was like all these functions, like it could fart and turn to a motorboat and stuff. Um, and that's the whole movie. And this, like, there's just like some of these jokes, they force to stick around so long that they're not funny and you have to find like the emotional core in them. And some of that works and some of it doesn't. Like, um, there's like a recurring bit with a raccoon. And at first it's like a funny joke. Um, One of the funniest going... jokes in the movie, I yeah, think. It's, yeah, it's, it's like very hilarious. Um, it comes it, too it, late like... for me to really enjoy it, though. <laughs> I'm already worn out by the Dang. time we get there. <laughs> the, uh, but then it just keeps going. And eventually, like, they try to, like, wrap it into the emotional core of the film. And... Like, there's an audacity in that where they're just, like, daring you to, okay, we kept this joke around long and so long that, like, the humor has worn off, so now you have to find something else in it. And, like, in theory, I like that idea. And in practice, it only sometimes works in this movie, I think. Zach, do you have any um, thoughts that you didn't share the first time? No, I still stand by, like, I'll be curious to see this on a second viewing i don't know i to me i'm just so exhausted by i'm honestly really exhausted by the response to this i was at i was at work the other day and like somebody asked me hey did you see this and like i tried to i try to gauge because you know how i respond to stuff some because i don't want to you know you don't want to be it's the same with the punk yeah you don't want to yeah you don't want to ruin somebody's fun and so i'm just kind of like yeah no i saw it like it's it was fine like it was i I enjoyed parts of it it was good and they like looked at me like i just said um you know like i just talked about how i like mutilated a uh uh you know a cat and just left its corpse outside you know i'm just like they like looked at me with like this just you know (laughs) disgusted look and they're just like you didn't how how could you? you not love this and i was like i mean like i get it there's a lot going on. I'm not, this isn't dismissive, but I'm not like impressed by a bunch of stuff going on all the time. You know, like I'm just, 
Didn't you say off mic that he said it was the greatest movie he'd ever seen? No, that just seems to be like it seems it seems to be okay. like it's either the greatest movie you've ever seen or you hate it. And there's no. It's the highest rated movie on Letterboxd. Yeah, and period. How is that possible? Like the average, the average is really high. Really high. Is yeah. it just a recency bias? Like, do we That's wait true. a few yeah. months? Letterboxd, and it if you go down. to the highest rated movies, a lot of it is like. Parasite, Ladybird, well, and it's and it's that tough kind of because it, that, those are the people using Letterbox. So the people who respond, the TikTok, yeah, who respond to those, but yeah. like that makes sense. It also, and I get why it's been responded to really well, not necessarily because of its quality, but because it, to your point before, like it is very, it's unique. And it's very like it's doing a bunch of stuff. It's very creative, and I think that we like because of the 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 movie landscape at the moment is so deprived of any creativity. It's like this. I think would be mid would be mid, <laughs> but because there's nothing, it's just it's just like it's the greatest thing of all time because it has so much more personality to it than any studio movie, you know. For the most I will say I'm gonna push back on that a little bit. I think this movie is like out there enough, like and singular enough that it would stand out regardless of context. Like I can't think of a time in filmmaking history where this movie would have just like faded into the crowd. Like this is a movie that like kind of demands people to have a response to it. And you know, even if you go back to like whatever, like the heyday of American independent, like in the nineties or something like that, like you know, your typical Miramax slate. Uh, or, or whatever at the time, like, this is still, like, the energy... Those movies weren't this weird. Yeah, the energy that this brings in, like, the... Like, it, it's, like, trying to command a stage, and I think that that can be, like, really exhausting, but it's also, like, it's not... I don't think it's just because of the kind of, like, dearth of originality in cinema that people are responding to it. I would say you can watch Putney Swope, and that's about as crazy as this movie. Putney Swope is a good comparison. Yeah, yeah but also that's like an all-time weird movie, <laughs> you know. Like you go to the late six, go to the Putney Swope time period. The and Putney Swope universe. Putney Swope. <laughs> Putney yeah, Swope's a crazy like, universe. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I, all I'm saying is that again, like it's not. It's just more. Um, my main takeaway is like just. Just enjoy your movie and, and move on. Like it's a little aggressive. We got Well, we got, you know, you said Zach, you were curious how it's gonna hold up on a rewatch. And I wonder if this movie's stock is going to plummet because so much of the joy that people get out of it is the novelty, the surprise. That's like what I mean. Every cut to a new thing that you that's weren't true. expecting. Yeah. Once you know the beats, is this fun to watch? I don't I really don't know. And that's what I want to know. Like that's why I say like I I'm 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 open to it. Could either I'll either not like it on the second one or I'll like it more. I don't know. I it it's it's one that I'm 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 really really curious when you know how the mechanics work and you watch it that way if it has any resonance. See, I feel like when I watched it, I already felt like halfway through the movie I knew all the surprises anyway because they're so recurring and. Like, because the movie feels so long, it feels like a movie that I don't really feel like rewatching. Even though I liked it, I may, I guess in terms of, like, like, looking at our Letterboxd reviews, I think I'm the most positive on this movie of the three of us. But um, it's not a movie that I feel compelled to rewatch because it, by the end, it had felt like I had watched it twice already. And... Um, <laughs> 
put it on the poster. <laughs> By the end, I felt like I had watched it twice <laughs> already. You know, thanks. Michael O'Malley <laughs> Cinematary. I mean, again, like, I I like the movie a lot, but I think that it already overstays its welcome the first time. And if people didn't feel like that the first time, I'm curious how they'll feel the second time. Um, because maybe they were just, like, swept up in it and will be swept up again. Because, like... By the end, things are recurring so much and circling around so much that, you know, you spend half of the movie with the surprises gone, I felt like. Um, so I, I am curious to see, like, what its long-term viability as, like, you know, a top-tier movie is. Yeah. I mean, again, it's good on you if you like it. That's awesome. Enjoy your enjoy it. I just, God, I, I, can I, I, just, I just can't stand the... Uh, the you like like it's impossible to talk about this movie i actually like it um i like the discussion because um it's been a movie that a couple different times like um you know pe- people like when i meet people you know people will be like oh you know hey you know what do you do like well i'm a teacher and like you know you have that sort of conversation it eventually comes down to like what are your hobbies and one of the things i usually say is like well i watch a lot of movies and you know, almost inevitably, someone will say like, "Oh, I saw a movie the other day," and they'll name a movie that either one I didn't like or two I haven't seen because it didn't look interesting. Um, but multiple times, I've had that sort of conversation where this movie has come up, and it's really nice that it has like broken through to a broader audience because it is a movie that I feel like I can have a conversation about, as opposed to like, "Oh, sorry, I didn't see Spider Man," um, which is like what I've had to say a lot of different times. Uh, so I don't. I don't know. Like maybe I'm just not like as immersed in discourse as uh, I could be. But I enjoy that this is getting like a broader reception because it it means that I don't have to complain about Marvel to people. <laughs> <laughs> I so moral of the story is Michael likes this movie because it makes it eases up his conversations that he has. See, I, yeah. see what you got to do for I just don't tell people I watch movies and then I don't have to talk about stuff. Maybe that's my mistake. <laughs> I don't know what to say about myself. Then. <laughs> I just don't talk. It's it's wonderful. I just you know oh, I just sit there. Fair enough. Just just exist. All right. Um, we're gonna just do that. We're just gonna sit and exist in the second in the second part. I guess maybe I don't know. Um, but we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back talking about the living end after this. Cinematary listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Well, now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our film theory and chill series where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast, and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week. So please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you missed an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider 
consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday, we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content, and the last two reviews that we've written at Cinematary.com. It's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening, and it makes sure that you don't miss a single Cinematary review. Finally, the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else you're using to listen to the show. This helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website, and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. Episode 401 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be kicking off our Greg Araki series with 1992's The Living End, uh, written and directed by Greg Araki. The film stars John Garens, Marcus Hugh, and Jim Stark. Uh, a drifter and a film critic hit the road as fugitives and as gay lovers who are HIV positive. The Living End was one of the early films in the new queer cinema movement of the 1990s, comprised of movies by directors who were openly gay or lesbian. Those films generally portrayed protagonists who were open about their homosexuality and who confronted heterosexual norms. Often the pictures included graphic gay sex scenes. The Living End was the third film by Iraqi, but his first to receive wide distribution. Iraqi wrote the first draft of The Living End, which was originally titled Fuck the World in 1988, a time in which many gay men were dying from AIDS and a few and few medicines were available to treat it. Uh, although Iraqi tested negative for HIV, which causes AIDS, the specter of AIDS loomed over his life. Iraqi wanted to capture the desperation of the times, and went, but when he completed his uh, the first draft, which ended with the death of both the lead characters, he felt it was too dark to produce and moved on to write his fourth screenplay, Totally Fucked Up, which eventually came out in 1994. Sometime later, Iraqi met producer Marcus Hugh at a gay film festival. Hugh had just co-founded Strand Releasing with producer John Garens and expressed interest in financing one of Iraqi's films. The writer-director revised his script for The Living In, and Garens lent him a sync sound camera as well as leftover Fuji film from another shoot. The Living In was uh, then the first movie that Iraqi filmed in color. Uh, the Living End premiered in 1992 at Sundance, garnering unprecedented media attention. But it didn't please everyone on its first release, even within the gay community. One of the biggest complaints was that it was anti-women, or more specifically, anti-lesbian. It's 90s. Um, in 1992, the New York Times said, Black humor doesn't get much darker than The Living End, the story of two HIV-positive young men who managed to turn potential tragedy into a desperate... Uh, uproarious celebration of their newfound nihilistic freedom. Doing himself a great disservice, the writer and director Greg Araki labels his work, quote, an irresponsible movie, when it, when in fact it has the power of honesty and originality, as well as the weight of legitimate frustration. Miraculously, it, has, uh, it also has a buoyant, mischievous spirit that transcends any hint of gloom. 
1992, the uh, Rolling Stones said Hollywood's gutless fear of AIDS movies makes this savagely funny, sexy, and grieving cry from the heart of writer, director, cinematographer, and editor, editor Greg Garaki even more rending. Uh, and in 1992, the Washington Post said, crudely made and in your face, the living end is mostly annoying. Yeah. <laughs> um, on that note, let's talk a little bit about the movie. Um, what a, what, I'll, I'll just kind of open it up to the room. I mean, what is, what is, your, what is y'all's familiarity with Greg Araki? Because this was the first one I'd seen. Yeah, I mean, I really like him, and I wouldn't have stumbled into his stuff without you guys because I saw you guys watching the that stuff and I was like, oh, that seems interesting. And um, I don't know about y'all, but I was more or less watched his movies in reverse chronological order, maybe, kind of. The first one I watched was Mysterious Skin, I want to say, which, as you say, is super rough. Um, and then I kind of, Smiley Face and Splendor are like much lighter and much more like fun by design because um, they're not about, you know... Uh, ritual sexual abuse but um the uh uh like there there was kind of like that unifying a shoegaze feeling um which i really enjoyed as well as a unifying kind of like goofy like go for broke like camp um sensibility uh which i really enjoyed as well and like those are all like i think splendor's like late 90s and the other two are in the 2000s like very firmly um and then i watched this movie um and this movie to me feels like from a different universe um it is much more informed by, um, like, the kind of 90s independent American cinema. Like, um, at one point, like, Sex, Lies, and Videotape gets kind of, like, referenced. And it is definitely, like, born of that moment. Yeah, it's, like, born of that moment where, like, you had a lot of, like... But anyway, like, this movie feels so much more of that. Um, like, it feels less glossy and less smooth. And even the music is different. Like, this is all, like, industrial metal in the soundtrack. And... The character, one of the characters is constantly referring to, like, the Smiths and, like, the kind of, that kind of, like, British post-punk, like, sort of stuff. But that doesn't really appear that much. It's mostly, uh, like, Wax Tracks um, stuff, like, from that label, if you're familiar with that. So, like, um, you know, it's, it's really kind of abrasive music that we're constantly hearing. And I can understand, like, how this filmmaker got to making something like Splendor or um, Smiley Face. But it, I was really put... Like even, but even like mysterious skin has that kind of like glossy, like um, like kind of ethereal feel to it that some of his other movies do. And whereas this movie is like grimy and like it has a really rough film grain to it, like the look of it uh, and the um, just the sensibilities of it are very um, like kind of scuzzy and on the road and and like vagrant um, compared to his other movies, which like toy with that sort of like vagrancy and free-spiritedness but always have like like you mentioned like the teen nick aesthetic and i think like there is like the aesthetic makes those movies feel safer than like what the characters are doing whereas this movie has characters doing like things that are at least equally as dangerous but the aesthetic doesn't make you feel like you're safe in the movie and i was really put off guard but i and i ended up really liking this movie i think this is one of my favorite of his that i've seen um but uh but yeah, I'm I'm curious, like Zach, as someone who has not watched the Gregor Aki movie, how this came across? Because I was definitely coming to this with the baggage of the other movies that I've seen. There's a running gag that feels very John Waters to me, as somebody who's not really a John Waters expert. But it's the thing where a character will be in a space by themselves, and 
two people will walk by, one of them like holding the other by a leash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At one point they ask like for yeah. spare change or something and they don't have any and the guy's like, you bunch of posers and they just like <laughs> get pulled off the screen. <laughs> it's like what's driving the relationship, right? These are characters who know that they're gonna die um, and they don't know exactly when they're gonna die but they're kind of like just acting as recklessly as possible because what do they have to lose um, at this point? And I imagine that, like, you know, I'm not gay and didn't live through the AIDS crisis, but I imagine that finding a partner um, would be extremely difficult once you've tested positive. And, like, you might... And somebody please, like, write in and tell me if I'm wrong about this. But, like, finding a partner who is also positive might feel like um, a... A weirdly comfortable thing because you don't have to worry about giving it to the other person, right? So these people are like clinging on to each other for dear life, so to speak. Right. Well, and their entire uh, connection is based on that too. Like these are people who would not really be sharing a space except for their like you know shared like sense of like impending doom. But he's not untethered like the the one character is. Right. Although, like there is like what I think is interesting about the movie is like the two people who. Um, you know, are the kind of central pair. Like, you know, one is a guy who is like almost like purely nihilistic, right? Like, you know, he is a movie who seems just like, um, un- or not a movie, he's a character who seems unflappable because he has already given up the sense that he has any future. Like, he gives this whole spiel, like, you know, pretty early in the movie about like how, uh, you know, he's kind of like part of this doomed generation that has to pick up the consequences from the generation before him. And he thinks that, like, uh, the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the powers that be are interested in, like, more or less, like, genociding gay people. And he's just, like, had to come to terms with that. Where, and, you know, so he's, like, kind of, like, completely abandoned any idea of, uh, like, conventional living um, or, like, you know, mainstream, like, bourgeois existence or whatever. whatever. Um, whereas the other person is, like, a film critic and, like, has personal connections with people and is, like, more the person with... Uh, a connection to um, the kind of, uh, you know, it's not mainstream because he's like clearly still like within like a marginalized community, but like a a stable life. Right, right. Like he has a connection to living. um, And the, the like dynamic between these two is kind of like almost like a, like an interior dynamic that I imagine might reflect someone who has, you know, contracted a disease where, you know, you will, you, you will probably die, you know, at some point, um, where that, like, push and pull between, like, pure nihilism of, like, uh, you know, I'm completely giving up on any sense of finding, like, meaning and connection in life versus this uh, desire to want stability, to want domesticity on a certain level. And I think that these two characters are really interesting as like almost psychological constructs, um, like like commenting on that conflict. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like there's two or three scenes back to back where this guy just like keeps coming across murderers. <laughs> like what? This guy's living in a different movie. Um, what do y'all yeah, make of like yeah. the the kind of characters that they come in contact with? Like they, like the, because the world itself is kind of interesting. You have like the the one character, the female character who's friends with the film critic one. Um, 
you the 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 other guy the drifter you he interacts with different people and almost lives in kind of like this surreal world to a degree i mean you have like that whole scene where he's having he's had sex with the guy and the guy's girlfriend comes in and then shoots him you know that's a very john watersy feel it's not the 70s anymore it's not cool to be married to a bisexual which is a great line. I thought that was funny. <laughs> um, there was a lot of great lines in this movie. I thought that like it just had a lot of throwaway things. But it's just, it's kind of like, it's such a strange construction that I like because it's almost like, almost to a degree, like they're, like they're almost the most normal because I mean, like think of like the people you come in contact with. You have the guy who's who he the, who the drifter has sex with, and then his girlfriend comes in and kills him. You have the two we mentioned before, the two women in the car who picks him up. Um, you have like the whole interaction at the uh, like the shopping mall. Like there's just like like every other person in this world is kind of like almost this like surrealist cartoon like figure, and it's such a weird space to inhabit that because between you know the two of them together doing their thing and everybody else. I watched the movie a couple of days ago. Um, maybe it was Sunday. I think it was Sunday, and we're recording this on Wednesday. And I don't remember most of those characters. Like, I just remember the two protagonists because, like, the movie is just like such their world, like their own world. And like, th- like you said, they like bounce off of these other people here and there, but these people barely make an impact because, like, these characters are so caught up in their own headspace they're they're not like trying to make any meaningful connections it seems and i mean like that's i would imagine that's kind of like a function of living in a world that seems ambivalent or even hostile toward the idea of your existence right you know a lot of these characters that they interact with are characters that pose a threat to them you know whether it's like the random like you know psychotic uh homophobic people are gonna like beat the crap out of them or like the the person who's like, uh, you know, very life is at threat because his wife will kill him um, if he, you know, quote unquote, like relapses. Like he mentions that like earlier in the scene. Um, and I don't know, like there there is something really interesting about like the way that the rest of the world is portrayed as absurd and s- not not silly because it's like menacing and threatening, but like um, like you know um, bizarre. You know, if if the world doesn't care about you, like the world has to seem absurd and bizarre on a certain level, you know, because that's the most natural thing is to like self-preservation. And once the world doesn't care about your preservation anymore, like it ceases to be working from the same point of view as you. Uh, And so it just is is alienating. I mean, again, like people write in and tell me a straight person that I'm, you know wrong about this but like i think that that's within them i think that's true i think that's that's the intent no i think that's true because that's and that's what's fascinating about it because i think it does it just kind of drops you in this this space that um it's not it's not it's not a right or wrong space it's like you're describing it's the it's just the headspace of these characters and they kind of have these conflictions within them that they're fighting um that that kind of clouds everything. And to me, that makes it fascinating because, you know, you're trying to find, you're trying to find like the, the, not necessarily the truth, but just like 
the genuine, like it's something genuine, something real out of it. And um, a lot of the time it's just like, like you think of like the last scene of the movie, like it's just kind of this weird fucked up, like, like this was what this, this is kind of the realness of it. Yeah. That's, that's a really rough scene. Um, Like how do we want to describe that scene? Is that a like rape slash attempted suicide? I think so. See? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Is that, is that what's happening? Uh, that's probably the best yeah. way of describing it. Yeah. Previously in the movie, where he talks about like the connection between death and an orgasm as being like kind of chemically similar, and he'd like to die like as an orgasm, and like at that point in the movie, the 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 characters have become antagonistic toward one another, and um, yeah, it's super rough, um, and the. I don't know, like, there's there's a thing that's even rougher about it, you know, which is that, like, he can't kill himself, right? He can't die on his own terms, which I think is, that's the conversation they have earlier in the movie, too, which is, like, they think about, you know, this guy says, like, you know, I don't want to have to go through the the symptoms of having, of having AIDS. Um, I don't want to have to linger on um, and, and go through all the anguish and pain that that entails. Uh, so I'm just going to kill myself, like, you know, before that can happen. Uh, and he attempts to do that at the end of the movie and can't. And then, like, the last shot of the movie is just them sitting there on the beach after the gun has misfired and just having to sit with the fact that they, they're they not even allowed, like, the dignity of dying on their own terms. And I think that, like, I don't know. I, it's It's really hard to watch. And I don't really, yeah. I can't claim to, like, have any sort of, like, insight into that, that, like, uh, kind of like uh, that headspace, but it feels like a very, in the movie, it feels presented very genuinely. And as, as like camp and snide as the movie can be like that, there's nothing about that in that scene. And it feels, right. you know, just right. The emotional core of the movie is just like seething anger. Right. And I like literally can't imagine that amount of anger um, because like we live in a world where there is treatment for stuff like this right for the most part um but like to feel like you and your entire community are just like facing oblivion um is um just really that's just a lot um but but to me at least i mean again i can't i can't speak to it from that point of view but like to me personally it, it resonates because it seems much more true then like you know going back to the 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 comparison with something like philadelphia like doing doing kind of like this like for lack of a better word like oscar Beatty hollywood uh like representation of that where it's kind of like this is tough and these people acknowledge that it's tough but you know in the end it's kind of like you know swoon hollywood ending the important that, like, thing is to empathize or whatever yeah, yeah exactly like this like this one is just like no i'm just fucking angry like this is fucking stupid and i'm fucking angry and i don't like that's 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 just how i how it is and like to me i'm like yeah that's like like that's fine like we need that that's great does that. like like what like what else are you what else are you supposed to be you well, know in this does that a lot of like oscar bait movies do when they try to like you know engage with serious um like serious uh, topics, which is that like the protagonist of the movie is not the person going through the serious thing. The protagonist of the movie has to contend with the serious thing. Um, like as a person looking outside in and find like empathy, you know, not, you know, find a way to 
uh, you know, be an ally or, or have some sort of measure of compassion for someone. Whereas this movie is so embedded in the psychology of being the person experiencing the, like the awful thing. And I think that is just such a fundamentally different kind of movie than what Philadelphia or a lot of movies are, you know, um, where you are not allowed any sort of like out from this perspective, like the, or, or the closest thing you have as an out from this perspective is the film critic's friend who keeps calling out of concern, like being like, where are you? And that's like where she's left. Like the last scene that we see her is like her receiving a phone call from this guy and she's really worried about him. Um, and that's the only perspective that we have outside of the, the perspective of like, you know, I have contracted this disease that people seem completely apathetic toward trying to cure and I'm going to die from it. Like that, there, there, there's no escape from that except for the friend who is going to lose that person. And I don't know, it's, that's, that's so, so raw and such an open, like, em, like live nerve that... So I know that this movie is like operating on a very different emotional register than a lot of the later Greg Rocky movies like Smiley Face or Splendor, for example. But I do think there is probably something connecting them, which is just like the emphasis on like people and relationships and like connections. And and I also think that Greg Rocky is like very um, like unapologetic about the sexual connections between people being a, 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 like a major factor of like how they experience joy with one another. Um, and like the fact that that joy also leads to like in, in the time period that this takes place in also leads to like devastation is like something that these characters like cannot wrap their head around. Right. Uh, but I'm curious, Michael, as somebody who's seen some of the even rougher movies like mysterious skin, like, how does how does how do the emotions compare? How does like the way he handles the subject matter of like really dark material yeah. uh, compare? I mean, I think here? with Mysteri- mysterious skin, like the arc of that movie is like two people who are abused by the same person in childhood, like finding each other and finding a sense of connection uh, with that. You know, which is in its own way beautiful. Um, in the same way that like this movie, there is a kind of beautiful connection between these two people you know, who are both HIV positive. And so I think that that's like a, a common connection, you know, as I, you know, as much as I mentioned earlier that this feels like this kind of like scuzzy, like nineties independent cinema thing. I think that, um, you know, nineties independent cinema is known for like its irony and sarcasm and, and, and that sort of stuff. And Greg Araki seems to like, uh, like, yeah, he anticipates the sincerity of much later, um, film. And, you know, that's not to say there's not sincerity in any 90s film, but, like, the, the sense of irony only goes so far as, like, kind of shielding this beating heart um, in his movies. And uh, so in that way, you know, you have kind of, you know, if you think of, like, the indie movement, American indie movement of the 2000s, that's a much more, like, openly sensitive and openly sincere kind of cinema than, let's say, like, um, the, like, Stephen Stone. Yeah, Tarantino, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brothers, like kind or of whatever. Guys who came yeah. from the '80s and '90s, and were kind of like the torchbearers then. Um, and I think like this movie, The Living End, ends up feeling of a piece with his later movies in the extent that it is still foregrounding. Like you take these characters seriously in the sense of like 
they are human beings who are facing some really tough stuff. Um, and through that tough stuff, there is a sense of connection, you know, whereas like there are some like truly like just kind of like hip, cool, like nihilistic kind of like 90s independent cinema, like that something someone like Tarantino kind of popularized. And I think that Tarantino himself is probably not nihilistic, but he definitely birthed a like kind of hip coolness above any sort of like personal connection kind of cinema and yeah he kind of has like a south park-esque like ironic detachment to any of the things he's talking about right it's like i'm above it i don't need to get emotionally involved in what's happening and here you can see that like uh greg Araki is coming from a place that's like not unfamiliar with that because you know his movie is really bathed in like as we've talked about like this kind of, these kind of distancing mechanisms but I think that like one of the important things of about irony is that it's oftentimes a defense mechanism against like a world that seems, uh, you know, really hostile, right? And so the only sensible way to engage with that world uh, is through detachment. And I think that unlike a lot of the other like contemporary movies of like the early mid '90s, um, this movie not only shows you the detachment, but kind of like understands the desire for connection within that detachment, and kind of like the desperate uh, need to find like another human being who can also share in your sense of detachment. Um, like in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of um, like, uh, what's the ghost world? Like in a weird way, it reminds me of ghost world, which is like two characters who are disaffected for completely different reasons than this movie. But the core of the movie is kind of the way that they navigate their connection with each other. And I think that this movie is that as well, where um, the disaffection, like the, the, the irony and stuff is the immediate surface of the movie, but as the movie goes forward, you're kind of burrowing into, like past that into what, what, what is kind of like the humanity of these characters, which I think is consistent throughout his, his movies that I've seen. Yeah, and I think I, I like that you know, I liked how they handled that because I think too much nowadays, and this isn't just like a movie thing. I think it happens in like TV and such as well. But like there is like this kind of ironic defense where you're still there is still like this genuine emotion and reaction to something. But there's like this wall in front of it of like irony because just having like unfiltered emotion or or re, uh, you know an emotional response to it not that it's like uncool but like there's just something almost taboo to a degree about it no i yeah i think it is it's both taboo and uncool or like the uncool label is tacked on to it to like hide the fact that it's actually taboo right like this is an experience that i have a lot showing movies to teenagers like when something really emotional happens on screen a lot of times the impulse is to laugh um and i think that a that's kind of a way of saving face of like it it would make me look weak if i had an emotional reaction to this so i'm gonna like distance myself by laughing at it um but b i think like culturally we are I don't know, maybe this is too broad, too sweeping of a statement. Like, people don't want to, like, be emotionally affected by art, 
right? Like, I think that that is not what they're going to movies to experience for the most part, if, if that doesn't seem too cynical. Or at least some certain emotions, yeah. right? Like, I think, you know, people will be pumped up or, like, you know, euphoric about a work of art, and that's fine. But I think when you get to emotions, co- like, that we've internalized as negative. Because even, cause even the movie people. we talked about in the first part, Everything Everywhere, like, that's a movie that does have, like, this emotional core to it, whether we agree with it or not, but it's coded in this irony. So it it's, is. Yeah. And so, like, that's how you get there. And it's, and, like, I think about... And you get to leave saying, like, oh, the hot dog fingers were so fun. Exactly. You know? it's, it, and, like, I think about, like, how you're depriving yourself of something like... Um, the end of uh, the end of like late spring or Tokyo Story from Ozu, and like just it, this the kind of melodramatic uh, emotion that like Satsukahara has, where she just starts crying and puts her hands in her uh, in her or her right. face in her hands. We don't know what to do with that. Yeah, and it's like yeah. and, it, and it's and it's it's such a kind of like forced response, it be, but it's it makes sense in the context of the melodrama, and it's so emotional because of that. But I would be like devastated to watch that with a modern audience because they would just think it's oh, silly. I watched Tokyo Story with a with a room full of teenagers, and uh, this is so off topic from the living end at this point. I apologize, but the class change happened like in the last two minutes of that movie, and I told the kids like, if you want to stick around, I will email your next teacher and tell them not to count you late. But like most people left, and it was just like. Vi- to- totally ruined oh, the emotional uh, resonance no. of, of the ending of that movie. And I was just sitting there, like, actually just crying. <laughs> yeah, I would just be like, yeah. the I'm falling glass. The moral of the story is uh, Ozu should have used more hot dog fingers. Yeah, that's right. true. I, I I was telling somebody the other day that somebody asked, uh, asked me if, like, you could only watch, like, one one director's like if you like got some scenario where you can only watch one director's movies for the rest of your life what would it be and I, my pick was ozu man i think that's too sad i i would not be able to pick ozu i would, lo- answer for I would that be one. so happy in that i would be so happy in that reality i would probably be a better person coming out of watching all those movies that's too. what i think um um i don't know how we got from greg Araki to ozu but uh this is where we're at that's why you come to Cinematary. That's why you come to Cinematary, because we take yeah. you all over the place. Going on a journey. Um, all right, well, that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we... Uh, list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, whether one dollar or five dollar, we take we'll take uh, whatever you feel um, comfortable doing. Uh, you can go and do that at Patreon.com/slash/Cinematary as a uh, street sweeper drives by. Um, can't, thank you so much to our patrons: Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, uh, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we're going to continue our Greg Araki series with a trio of films from 1993 to 1997, known as the Apocalypse Trilogy. So. I think it's the Teenage Apocalypse Trilogy. Mm, teenage Apocalypse um, Trilogy. Stoked! It's um, totally fucked up. Is one movie nowhere is another movie and i think the doom generation 
is the last one, which the only thing I know about that movie is that the title card says a heterosexual movie by Gregor Aki, and I can't wait to see what that entails. All right. Um, Until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.